Hi, I'll be reading from the passage. It's printed out on your handouts that you were given. Judges 15, verse 20. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. One day Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, At dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength, and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her the seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took the new ropes and tied him with them. Then, with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, All this time you have been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me, how can you be tied? He replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric of the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric and tightened it with a pin. Again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging which such nagging she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite, dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines. Come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved.
Thanks, Dan. Uh, you'll find an outline of the talk uh, sort of opposite where the passage is printed out, Samson and Delilah. Okay. Well, I reckon Samson is probably the closest character in the Bible to one of your superheroes, isn't he? He's got superhuman strength, although he's a bit more like Loki than Thor, if you think about your superheroes. The unwritten law of superheroes is that you're given your strength for the common good. They're sort of a test of character as much as a privilege. And Samson is as flawed a character as any Samson is actually the last judge in these sequence of judges that we read about in this book of the Bible called Judges. Uh, We're just going to do a quick trip through his life and his story. Uh, It's actually the longest story of any of the judges, the last and the longest. And it finishes with this fascinating story of Samson and Delilah that most of us uh, feel a bit familiar with, I guess. It begins in chapter 13. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Israel, the privileged nation, plucked from slavery by God, dramatically liberated out of Egypt, generously given a land of their own. They just keep doing evil. And God puts them under the, the power of the surrounding nations, this time it's the Philistines, down on the coastal region of Gaza. Uh, In a sense, they're sort of like sent to the corner to come to their senses. And we see the cycle that has come again and again beginning, where uh, Israel does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, They then uh, are put in the hands of their enemies. In their distress, they cry to God. The Lord raises up a judge to save them. Who saves them until they turn from the Lord again? This is the beginning of the cycle. And you think, not again. How come? And you're waiting for Israel to call on God to save them from the Philistines. They've been under the Philistines for 40 years, but they actually never get to call on God. They never do it for whatever reason. Instead, we find that God takes a preemptive strike. In chapter 13, uh, the angel of the Lord appears to a woman, a Danite woman, and said to her, Behold, you're barren. You haven't born any children, which is a terrible disgrace and tragedy for any family in Israel. But now you shall conceive and bear a son. But be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor will come on his head, for the child will be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He'll be a special child. His birth will be by special intervention by God. And he'll be a Nazarite. Now, I presume you haven't met many of those, have you? The background is Numbers chapter 6, where God provides provision in the law he gives to Israel that if somebody, an adult in particular, wants to uh, dedicate themselves to God for a certain time uh, as, a, as a voluntary thing, they can make a vow to be a Nazarite. And there's certain provisions of it. They've got to abstain from wine and, in fact, anything to do with grapes at all, not even drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. And during the entire period of their vow, whether that's a year or five years, no razor is to be used on their head. Their hair is just to grow long and woolly because they're to be wholly different, separate for the whole period of their dedication to the Lord. They've got to let their hair grow long. Well, that's what this child is to be, except this isn't voluntary. This isn't as an adult. This is from the time he's born. He's to be like that. And he has a special destiny. He shall begin to save Israel from the Philistines. 
God will call him to be a judge, like Othniel and Ehud and Deborah and Gideon, a hero. And we've got high hopes for this guy because he's born in a special way like none of the others have. And God will make him all he needs to be, holy and separate and distinct, in order to save Israel from the effects of their evil and sin. And true to God's promise, this woman does have a baby. And she calls him Samson. Samson it sort of means sun, sunshine. That's what they call him. My little sunshine, because you're going to make the sunshine on Israel. Take it out of darkness. Well, what sort of man does Samson prove to be? Well, not a great one, actually. This is how he starts his life. Chapter 14, 1 and 2. He went down to Timnah, which is in the Philistine territory. He goes down to one of the enemy um, uh, villages. And he saw a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he says to her father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. He sees, he wants, he's going to get. His parents say, no, isn't there a nice Israelite girl you'd like? He parade a few before him, but he set his mind on this one that he's seen. He's just, he's besotted with her. And even though it's against the law of God, he takes her, he forces over his parents' wishes and takes her as a wife. On his way to sort of negotiate the wedding, um, he, he's attacked by a lion out in the fields. And Samson shows the other side of his character at this point. He, he rips the lion to shreds with his bare hands and leaves the carcass out there in the bush. Goes down, arranges the wedding. A couple of weeks later, he's coming back for the wedding itself. And he goes to see what's happened to this lion's carcass. And he, he finds that some bees have created a, a hive in it and it's got honey in it. And so he scoops up some honey and goes on his way eating and shares some of that with his parents. Now, you, you need to know at this point, he's just broken quite a few things that Nazarites are supposed to be. So he's made himself unclean by touching a dead body. And he's taken stuff from the dead body, the, the, the honey, and eaten it, consumed it. He's becoming more and more unclean. He's supposed to be separate and clean and holy, but he couldn't care less. He just goes with his stomach, with his appetites. Well, they come to the wedding and, and his experience helps him create a little riddle that he wants to get some, some profit out of. And so in the, wedding, in the middle of the, the reception, he, he spins this riddle. He says, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. And he says, you go and solve it. And he has a bet with them for 30 uh, uh, you know, man's clothing, tunic and stuff. Well, guess what happens? This woman... Well, she's threatened by the Philistine village. If she can't get the secret out of uh, Samson, of the riddle, they'll burn her and her, her father and the whole house to the ground. <laughs> so she's pretty desperate. So she forces the answer out of Samson. And so it comes to the end of the time and the vi- people of the village are able to give him the answer to the riddle. It's a lion, it's, it, it's honey. And Samson just does his nut. He, he really does. And he, you know what he does? He's got to provide 30 pieces of, of tunic. So what does he do? He goes and kills 30 Philistines, strips them of their clothes, dumps it in front of them, blood and all, and says, done. That's called vengeance. He, he, he's not a nice guy. In chapter 15, we see more of his vengeance. He goes back to visit his wife, his sort of wife, but by now she's with another bloke and he's not a happy chappy from doing that. So Samson says to them, this time I've got a right to get even with the Philistines. I'll really harm them. So he went out and he caught 300 foxes. 
And he paired them up, tied their tails together, uh, lit a torch for each of them and, and sort of somehow tied that into the tails and set them free in the harvest fields of the Philistines. And it just decimated their whole crop. Everything that was alive was dead. Everything they were trusting for next year's food was gone. That's a pretty effective way to make enemies and to get vengeance. That's the sort of guy he is. Uh, he then goes further than that. When they come and make it a bit hard for him and, and the people, the spirit of the Lord comes on him powerfully. They've tied him up. He breaks those like, like they're just flats. Uh, uh, and he finds a jawbone of a donkey and he grabs it and with one jawbone he slays a thousand men. I and mean, this is Jackie Chan sort of territory, isn't it? <laughs> Except this is not slapstick. This is real. The bodies are piling up. Samson gets his vengeance. He creates mayhem. He's a man wrecking ball. And then we come to the chapter that was read for us in chapter 16, which is the climax of the story. And it begins in a pretty unusual way. Where does Samson go? Well, he went to Gaza, which is back then in Philistine territory. And he's created enemies and he just sort of wanders back there. He can't stay away. And he sees a prostitute and thinks she looks delicious. And so off he goes. The, the people of Gaza, the Philistines, they, they recognise him. They think this is our chance. And, and so they, they close the gates of the, of the city. It's a walled city with big gates, the only way in and out. And they wait for him to come out. They think he'll come out at dawn, but he surprises them. He comes out at midnight and he grabs hold of the city gates, these huge gates and their posts and everything else, and he just rips them off their hinges and carries them all the way to Hebron, 60 kilometres up a 1,000 metres and dumps them on this hill in Hebron. And that is, that is Herculean, isn't it? Hercules, that, that, that's that sort of thing. It's like grabbing, I don't know, the, the Amity down in Albany and dumping it on top of Bluff Knoll. That, that's what he does. Incredible feat of endurance and power. He doesn't just smash open the city gates. <laughs> he leaves the whole city open and vulnerable like a crazed gorilla. There's his war trophy. The Philistines and Israel. And he just, he actually, by what he does, he increases the tension and difficulty between the Philistines and Israel. Israel, at one sense, find it harder now because the Philistines come down heavier. And then another woman appears on the scene. They're just woman after woman in this story. Again, she's a Philistine woman. This time we're told the name Delilah, the legendary seductress. Although it's actually Samson who's besotted. And he begins this affair with Delilah. And he puts himself in a very vulnerable situation. The Philistines work out they can't match Samson's strength. Like whatever they tie him up with, he just smashes to pieces. The, the only way to overcome him is to take his strength away. And they see Delilah as the way to that. The way to get the secret to his strength. Because his secret is not pure physique. It's not just that he's been down the gym enough and he's really buffed up and he's, he's got that power. There's something supernatural to his strength. There, there's a secret to it. And so we have this drawn out teasing account as Delilah tries every trick in the book to get Samson to reveal his secret. And Samson, interestingly, sort of plays along in the game. Except he keeps giving her false information. This game of daredevil brinkmanship, this macabre dance to the death almost. He's drawn in by his love for Delilah and his own daredevil sort of temperament. 
He keeps playing the game and it keeps getting more and more difficult. First he says, just tie me up with seven bowstrings. No, give that a go. That, that doesn't work. Then he says, tie me up with some new ropes, a little bit stronger. And that doesn't work. And then he says, well, get my hair, my seven braids of long hair, and use your loom and actually make some sort of material out of it. And notice that's getting a little bit warmer to the truth, isn't it? He's getting closer to revealing his real secret. But it still doesn't work. And then Delilah plays the big card in verse 15. Did you see that? The card. How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? Don't you, really, you don't really love me, do you? It's the card that's been played by so many men and women down through the centuries to get what they want. And she nags and nags and nags until finally he tells her. And when he tells her, it's obvious it's the truth because it's so significant. He says in verse 17, uh, No razor has ever been used on my head. Because I've been a Nazarite, dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I'd become as weak as any other man. See, he knows who he is, or at least he knows who he should be. He hasn't been behaving like it, but he knows he's dedicated to serve God, separated for God, even from the time of his birth. And the secret to his strength is in his hair. Not because his hair is magical, but because that's the sign of being a Nazarite. To shave it off is to cancel his Nazarite to become just like every other man. And you get the feeling, actually, that Samson wouldn't mind being just like every other man. And you heard the story, didn't you? Or you heard it before. Uh, Samson falls into a deep sleep after whatever, uh, and Delilah organises to have his head shaved. All his hair, his seven long braids, and his strength leaves him because God leaves him. He's captured. And they pluck his eyes out, which is ironic, isn't it? Because his eyes have led him into all this stupid stuff. It's always his eyes, and they pluck them out. He can't see anymore. He's blinded. But the story has a twist. You might think that's the end. They've subdued him. But verse 23, the rulers of the Philistines assembled to have a great sacrifice, to Dagon their God and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God Dagon has delivered our enemy. The one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they're in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. He's going to become the party entertainment. So they called him out of prison and he performed for them, whatever it might have been, humiliated before them all. Uh, And when they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so I may lean against them. Now the temple of Dagon was crowded with men and women. All the rules of the Philistines were there. On the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. This really is a party. And then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. That, that's a very poignant thing to ask. Because in the Bible to remember, to ask God to remember, is not to ask God to sort of wake up from a stupor, as if he's forgotten things. It's to ask God to act in accordance with his promise. You see, God had promised that this one, Samson, would begin to liberate his people from the Philistines. It doesn't look like that at all at the moment, does it? It's the exact opposite. Here's Samson under the Philistines. Their plaything. Remember me. Please, sovereign God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. See what he's after still? Vengeance. That's what he's after. Personal vengeance. 
Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself one way and the other. He said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might and presumably with the might that God gave him. And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. You've heard that story before? It's a, it's a twist at the end. He just wants vengeance, but in his vengeance, there's this tragic triumph. He begins the liberation of Israel from the Philistines. Their God is crushed. Their leaders are killed. It takes another 30, 40 years before they're actually liberated. But this is a blow versus God's enemies. A rival uh, and a rival to God, which is achieved not in his life, but in his death. Well, what do we do with this story? It's a great story. You can make movies of it. People have. And there's many lessons about the danger, the destructive danger, the power of, the, of our sexual drives and our drive for vengeance. And those things are real and true. Guys especially learn from it. There's a sobering reality check for our dreams of being superheroes, which most of us quietly harbour somewhere. But there's a wider, deeper significance in this story for Israel, for God's people, and therefore for us. Because I don't know whether you recognised it, but Samson mirrors Israel at almost every point. He's separated from other people in the same way that Israel was separated from other nations. Consecrated to God, to serve God for his whole life, just like Israel was separated from other nations to serve the living and true God. He's supposed to be clean and holy, live that way all his life, but he's continually breaching that, contaminating himself, just like Israel does time and time and time again. He'd actually rather be just like other men, not special in any way, like Israel wants to just be like the nations around them. He's constantly seeing women and going for them. He just can't help himself. These foreign women, these Philistines, they just got to keep crossing his, his view and he's attracted to them. They're irresistible. Just like Israel finds the foreign gods around them irresistible. And it's that, uh, that flaw that leads to the tragedy. And it makes you ask the question, is it going to lead to the same sort of tragedy for Israel? These flaws in Samson that prove so fateful, that, uh, uh, fatal, that, that make a train wreck, despite all the privileges, all the superpowers that he's got, his life really is, it seems, a train wreck. And Israel, of course, is not just a separate nation. Israel is one nation amongst all of humanity. And what they are is really what all of us are like, created specially by God, to live in this world and enjoy it and rule it under and with him. And that's true of every person. And yet every one of us is sort of like Samson, aren't we? It's the lust of the eyes. It's the pride. It's the, the seeking vengeance. It's, it's wanting other gods than the true and living God that just keeps distracting us and taking us away. And the story leaves us with this question, is it going to end? Is the story of humanity and the story of Israel going to end in tragedy? And self-destruction. It looks like it will. But in this story, there's another character. And he's a character that only breaks the surface occasionally. I used to live out in country WA. And um, every now and then in, in the country, it sort of, when you first moved there, as I did from the city, the whole countryside just felt flat. 
After a while, I realised it actually had quite a lot of ups and downs, little hills, little valleys. And every now and then, you'd find this uh, granite outcrop would break the surface. And and you'd realise that actually all the undulations, all the hills and valleys, were because underneath the the soil was this this granite uh, rock formation. And there's someone like that in this story. Only occasionally breaks the surface. But when he does, you realise that underneath all, shaping everything, is this character. And that character is God. He starts by raising up Samson. The the angel of God tells the mum that the child will be a Nazarite to God. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the the Philistines. See, although uh, Israel... uh, Sorry... Although Samson is like Israel in many ways, God is going to use him to begin to save Israel. And God has set him apart from before he was born to achieve his purposes. Israel never cried to God for help. No, humans don't take the initiative here. They don't press God. They don't request of God that he come and help them. God instead takes action. He takes the initiative. He creates a plan and is determined to bring this plan to be. And central to this plan at the moment is a guy called Samson. He's going to begin it. But Samson actually is completely oblivious to that. He seems to have no interest in leading Israel and liberating Israel. Remember in chapter 14, he goes down to Timnah, he sees a woman. That's not a strategic move on his part because he wants to do a bit of uh, spy work amongst the Philistines. It's just that he's seen a woman and if he sees a woman, he's going to have the woman. But notice what God says about it. Now Samson said to his father, get her for me. I want him. She's the right one. His parents didn't know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. Do you see what's happening? Samson's got no strategy whatsoever. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just being led by his groin. But God has a strategy even in that. He is stirring up a confrontation. This is from the Lord, a strategic plan God is putting into effect. And Samson, although he's being led by the groin as far as he knows, he's actually being led by God. Do you know this God? See, this is a God who's sovereignly working, not just in good things that happen, but in the evil things that happen. In in the good intentions and motives and in people's oblivious evil motives. So often we think that God can't do that. God is just a God that, well, if good things happen, yes, he's behind that. If evil things happen, well, he's sort of lost control. That's somebody else running things and, and, and achieving their purposes. And God just got to sit back and try and work out how can he counter it some way. But no, even in the bad things Samson does, God is working out his purpose. If that's how you think about God, that he, he's restrained, he, when evil things happen, that, that's not God at work. Your God is too small. It's not the true and living God. That reveals himself in the pages of scripture and in the lives of Samson and Israel. And we see God stirring Samson a number of times. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. Went down to Ashkelon, struck 30 men, stripped them of the clothes. He's doing terrible stuff. Again, in chapter 15, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on Samson again. The ropes in his arms, finding the jawbone of the donkey, he struck down a thousand men. I mean, what he's doing is, in one sense, it's just pure, unadulterated vengeance. And yet God is giving him the power, this extraordinary crazed strength, to do it. Some of us might be shocked at God empowering Samson to kill 
Well, you need to remember that actually killing Philistines was his job. That's what it takes to liberate from oppression. But shocking more than that is his reason for killing. Him as just hot-blooded personal vengeance. Understandable, but not commendable at all. Why would God give him the power to do that? Well, God's purpose is not Samson's vengeance, but to begin the liberation of Israel through Samson. God is not left impotent by our mangled motives and actions. He uses even those for his purposes. And my guess is, as you look back on your life, you can see all sorts of ways in which you've done things for wrong and mangled motives. Have you stuffed up God's plans and purposes? No, never. God is bigger than that, more powerful than that, more brilliantly wise than that. And we see God at work too in Samson gaining this victory in the end, in chapter 16. Through Samson, this pseudo-hero, God gains a victory over the pseudo-god Dagon. Do you notice how significant Dagon is in this final act of Samson's life and death? The occasion is sacrifices to Dagon, their god, thanking him for giving them victory over Samson. They praise God for delivering Samson into their hand. And the place it happens is the temple of Dagon, the place where he's worshipped and honoured. And it's that temple that comes crashing to the ground when God strengthens Samson. He kills Samson and he crushes Dagon and his temple and, all, and his worshippers. The Dagon is no real God. He's no emanation of the real God. It may appear for a while that Dagon has the power, but only for a while. He doesn't really have it. He's just a piece of granite. So I hope you see in this story of Samson the shadow, not just of Israel, but of Jesus. Samson is a flawed sort of anti-hero that God used despite his gross failings. Jesus was and did everything that Samson should have been, could have been, you might say. Remember Jesus, he was born supernaturally, wasn't he? An angel announced to his mum that she would have a special child. And that special child was God's gracious, loving provision to deliver us from the oppression of our enemies. It was planned and provided for, not because we asked God to help, but because... We hadn't. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we're still sinners, while we're still enemies, Christ died for us. And like Samson, Jesus is empowered by God's spirit with superpowers to be used against the powers of evil. This is how Peter describes Jesus. Anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and power, he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Unlike Samson, Jesus didn't use those powers for personal vengeance or profit, but to release people from the power of Satan and sickness and death. The polar opposite to Samson at this point, more like Superman, but so much better. And we see in Jesus God sovereignly working his salvation, his decisive victory to liberate his people through the death of his man, through actually leaving his man to die, The death of public shame. But that death was no accident. It was no mere clever clever opportunism on God's part. He he, he noticed it was going to happen. He thought, I can do something good out of this. No, it was the very, uh, it was what God had willed and decided beforehand should happen. What looks like victory for God's enemies ends up in God's brilliant plan being their defeat and destruction.
And what does it tell us about the story of humanity? How will it end? Is it going to end in mere tragedy, a rubble of human uh, fighting and lust and vengeance and sin? No. Because God has begun to deliver humanity from the power of evil. Through Jesus. Philosophy can't do that for you. Muhammad can't do that for you. Material prosperity won't do it for you. But Jesus has done it and will bring it to completion when he returns. And so the question it leaves all of us with is, are you on board with Jesus? Or are you still sort of hoping in your Dagon or whatever else it might be that they might prove adequate? Jesus is the one who's actually done it. He died and in his death he crushed sin and evil. And in God's kindness he rose again to be our Lord and Saviour. God has begun to deliver humanity. Have you been delivered? Well, we haven't got time for questions. I'm going to hang around though. And if there is something you'd like to ask about, um, please come and chat to me later. Why don't we pray? Let's pray. Our God of Father, we are stunned and shocked in some senses by this story of Samson. We thank you that you are wise and powerful enough to use even flawed people like him to bring about your wonderful good purposes. And we thank you for the way he helps us understand Jesus. Please, Father, help us to grab hold of Jesus and what he's done for us and what he is for us and not let go. In Jesus' name. Amen.